going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. A busy Wednesday on the Calgary Today podcast. We get the latest details on the investigation into the explosions near Edmonton, dive into security costs for an Olympic bid, and take a look back at Canada's role in the end of World War I ahead of Remembrance Day. But we open things up talking about the identity crisis politicians seem to be feeling on all sides of the pendulum. Here's a quick question for you to conjure up, and I'm going to ask Lori Williams this question as well. Do you think Rachel Notley of 2014 would recognize Rachel Notley 2018? Food for thought. Let's bring in Lori Williams from Mount Royal University. Hello there, Lori. Hi. Let me ask you that question. Do you think Rachel Notley of 2015 would recognize Rachel Notley of 2018? I do. Um, I think uh, she's always been a pragmatist. She recognizes the Alberta economy relies on oil and gas, but she wanted to introduce uh, sort of an environmental balance to that so that one could both grow the economy and protect the environment. Does the the fact that she supports a pipeline expansion fly in the face of some who she had as supporters in 2014, 2015? I think there are some uh, who would have would have said that uh, certainly uh, diehard environmentalists would have said that we should not be in the business of producing oil from the oil sands in the first place, much less shipping them through a pipeline. The environmental risks of that are too high. There are certain certainly people in that camp, um, but most uh, Albertans and indeed many Canadians are are interested in trying to strike some sort of workable balance until such time as alternative sources of energy can be can be generated. So I think. Primarily because the 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 oil sands are such a source, or the oil industry, the, the energy industry is such a source of revenue, not just for Alberta but for Canada, that that many people uh, recognize that there's got to be a balance between the production of those those energy resources, the shipment of those energy resources, and the environment. So is she, in in a sense, almost alienated those two just to the right of her as well? And I look at the. The, the Justin Trudeau liberals, as an example, is that someone who everyone kind of thought, especially those who are on the right, think they're buddy-buddy, and yet you get the sense that they're not exactly the best of friends. Well, again, they've got d- different interests, and I think uh, political realities are well understood, both by Justin Trudeau and by Rachel Notley. Uh, for Justin Trudeau, uh, at least in terms of policies, there is an affinity. So Rachel Notley's advocating for Alberta, and she's saying that she wants to put a price on carbon in the way that she wants to do it, uh, in a way that's good for Alberta. Um, but she's not willing to play ball with Ottawa if they're not supporting Alberta's interests. So in terms of um, the choices that Justin Trudeau has within Alberta, in terms of the, the two parties that have the, the greatest shot at winning the next election, Rachel Notley is definitely a, a closer, um, if not ally, certainly somebody who's closer in terms of policy preferences than, than uh, Jason Kenney is. Of course, Jason Kenney... It is very opposed to Justin Trudeau. He doesn't think much of him personally, doesn't like his policies, and has um, basically declared that he's going to go after Justin Trudeau if he becomes if he becomes the premier. So playing devil's advocate or maybe gazing into my crystal ball, I suppose, let's say come next summer we have Jason Kenney as premier. Is that not maybe a better case scenario for Justin Trudeau, weirdly enough? Because then all of a sudden, as, as, 
as Mr. Kenny has pointed out, is he's going to repeal the carbon tax here, mm-hmm. which would allow Justin Trudeau to come in and say, okay, well, we'll just put in a federal carbon tax in Alberta instead. So that cut that is going to Alberta is essentially just being transferred over to the feds anyways. No, no, it doesn't go to the federal government. It comes to Albertans. So th- th- this is actually um, what's going to make it harder for people to oppose the federal carbon tax is that um, whatever revenues are taken out of any province will be sent back to the residents of that province. So in other words, the money that's collected is not going to go to the Alberta government here. It's going to go to Albertans directly. Um, so that's going to make it harder for any of the premiers that are currently opposed to it to um I mean, of course, there's going to be opposition to the idea of a tax, and there will be some support for that. But to the extent that the residents of the provinces whose leaders are opposing the tax, to the extent that those residents get the money back, I think it's going to make it a harder thing to oppose, or at least to get uh, voter support to oppose. On the right side of the spectrum, Jason Kenney's had his own issues to deal with when it comes to the kind of the identity politics thing. Right. What is his biggest hurdle he's got to get over to win the hearts and minds of those who might be on the fence or those who are sitting there going, I don't know if I can do this. Well, we need to put this into perspective. So let's look back at the 2012 election when the so-called Bozo eruptions, so um, very inappropriate remarks made by uh, social conservatives, um, racially insensitive um, one could argue homophobic remarks being made by members of the of the then Wild Rose Party. Mm-hmm. And the leader of the party said, well, she believes in freedom of speech, and she didn't really come down on the people who made those remarks. Um, so this, this problem of, um, let's say, extreme right-wing views are, are going to be a problem in a populist right-leaning party. People will be attracted to that party, and that's what just what Jason Kenney is facing as as these volunteers and candidates uh, for the nominations are sort of coming out um, through the cracks. What Jason Kenney has done, firstly, is he's condemned the views and says they have no place in the party. That's a much better position than, than Daniel Smith took mm-hmm. in 2012. So he's, he's made one step in the right direction on that. And then secondly, he's going to try to vet volunteers and members of the, of the party. That's a much harder thing to do. But th- that collective impression, you're quite right, uh, this, this impression one has that people who hold these unpalatable views are attracted to the party could taint the party in the eyes of some Albertans. They might be reluctant to vote for the UCP as a result of that. But a lot is going to come down to what they consider to be the most important issues. So if it looks to them like Jason Kenney is really committed to not legislating controversial social issues, if it looks like he's taking a very strong stance on um, on protecting rights and freedoms and so forth, and people are worried about the economy and think he might be better at handling the economy than the current government, um, it may not be uh, too big a liability, but, but it is a liability. The question is on balance. Um, where are people going to decide... Uh, what they can live with. Uh, do they, do they, they, can, they can live with Rachel Notley and um, a growing deficit, or do they they can live with Jason Kenney and, and the fact that he said uh, that he wants to stand against these kinds of views? I've wondered out loud, and I'd like your thoughts on this. Is it possible to actually have a big tent party, whether it's on the left or on the right? I want, like, the left isn't a big tent by any stretch because you still have. As, as small as it is right now in the legislature, you still have a Liberal Party, you do have the NDP, and you still have a, a Green Party as well in there. Is it a fallacy to think that you can live under one, happily under one roof? Well, he's in a 
Alberta, we did have that big tent party, the Progressive Conservative Party, that basically adapted and moved to the left or the right, or the right as as Albertans did. As the policies and, and interests of Albertans shifted, so did that party. And every time another party came up with a good idea, they just brought it into their tent and adopted it and continued in power. Um, I, I'm not sure that left and right is as big an issue um, currently. Well, I, I'm sure it, it is an issue in the sense that some people are worried that parties might go too far to the right or too far far to the left. But the more pragmatic a party is, the more it's focused on policies and issues, um, interests of Albertans and so forth, the less ideology becomes a concern for folks. So if those parties are successful at saying, look, you know, these are the issues these are the policies, this is our vision for the future, uh, and this is how we're going to accomplish it. If people can buy into that that set of, of um, policies and, and vision, then I think ideology becomes less of a concern. But um, ideology and polarization along ideological grounds does seem to be something that is becoming more pronounced, um, certainly internationally, not yet quite so much in Canada. But it is, a, it is a real challenge to try to deal with those who want to belong to parties that are ideologically defined and are looking for a home. Absolutely. Uh, Lori Williams, Associate Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University. Thank you so much for the time again, as always, Lori. Oh, it's my pleasure. What do you think about this? Do you think that there's a crisis on the left, too? As much as some people have tried to make it out to be, there's a lot of questions on the right, I think there's just as many questions on the left as well. So the reason I obviously ask the question about the whole left having a bit of an identity crisis happens out of the calling out Robin Luff has done, the MLA for Calgary East, of the NDP party. And I don't necessarily think that it's anything new. We've seen it before in every room in politics is you're going to have those different ideas that are going to be less received than others. And at some point you hit your breaking point where you're going, okay, I'm not making as much of an effect as I thought I was going to make. And I might as well take somebody down with me. But I've also had this discussion over the last probably six months or year now around that big tent politic idea. And I look stateside and I look at how fractured it is between Democrats and Republicans and how the distance has gotten bigger and bigger over the course of time, at least in my opinion. Because we have, there's this attempt to try to cater to the fringes, to bring more people in, to be, I'll call it inclusive. You want to be inclusive. You want to make sure that everybody feels welcome because you want to make sure that you can welcome in as many people as possible. Because obviously that's the whole point in trying to get elected and win. But at some point by accepting some on the fringes, are you not backing out of what you originally stand for. And my argument would be, if you were to go back, if 2018 Rachel Notley were to find the DeLorean and fly back in time to Rachel Notley of 2013. Now, don't even get me started on the whole time continuum thing that Doc Brown got into, because that's just a whole other topic. But I'm curious whether or not they would recognize one another. And Looking at Robin Luff's past, I wonder if that didn't play a part in it, where it was, 
we stood for something at one point, and now we're standing for something. While it's not dramatically different, it is still different at the end of the day. So there, there is that aspect that I go, okay, especially with Rachel, she's not exactly in, in the good books with Jagmeet Singh on a federal level. She's not really in the good books of Justin Trudeau's government right now. So where exactly is she on that political spectrum? On the flip side, if you go over to the right, this is where the other issue is. Is okay, everybody on the right says, yep, I'm fiscal conservative, but nobody can really agree yet on what exactly the big piece of the pie is socially. As I've stated on this program before, and I'll state it again for the record, is I am a fiscal conservative, but if you ask me to back down on some of my best friends, I will refuse to do it. There's no way that I'm going to back down on gay marriage. I'm not going to back down on race. I'm not going to back down even on freedom of religion. I'm not going to back down on any of that. So socially, I believe in a strong health care system. I believe in a strong education system. But if you ask me to turn my back on any of my friends on that front, I will refuse to do it. And that's the struggle that I think a lot of Albertans, especially the ones that I've been talking to, are having is, okay, where I don't know where I'm supposed to stand here. And as we continue to get more polarized, we continue to try to navigate the waters of provincial politics over the next few months as we head into a provincial election. Where should you be standing becomes the kind of the quick question. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. The story that we want to keep you updated on through the course of the afternoon and about an hour's time, we'll check in with Fletcher Kent from Global News in Edmonton. Uh, The two explosions in Sherwood Park last night and still not a lot of details being released to this point. And the mayor spoke out earlier today, uh, just actually about an hour or so ago, Mayor Rod Frank, uh, expressing what he had as far as thoughts were concerned heading into this investigation. As I mentioned, I was in the building at the time and I did witness smoke and fire in the aftermath. Obviously, this could have been far more tragic and I'm grateful to the rapid and professional response of our emergency responders and the RCMP to minimize the risk to our residents. While these unprecedented explosions have rocked our close-knit community, I know our community will overcome this isolated incident. It's impossible right now to know the motivation for this desperate action. I can tell you that I have full confidence the RCMP's investigative ability to undercover these unanswered and very important uh, questions. In order to provide the RCMP with the room they need for their investigation, the community centre and the county hall buildings will remain closed. Please refer to our website for full details on closures. In the meantime, on behalf of Strathcona County Council, we continue to offer the county's full support in all investigative efforts while we do everything in our power to restore function the community centre complex. This does remain an active investigation. It's very fluid. Now, RCMP did address the media about an hour ago, and there wasn't a lot of new information to be said out of it, other than the fact that police now say a 21-year-old man is dead 
And it seemed as though they were alluding to the fact that this 21-year-old was the suspect and the lone suspect in the case. They also, originally it was thought that there were there was just the one explosion. But as it turns out, RCMP say there was an explosion which prompted the original call to emergency officials. And as they were scouring that area, and it sounds like they were not that far away when a second explosion happened. And so there's still a few questions lingering in terms of the uh, motive behind the case. There's also a lot of questions as to what could have possibly triggered that second explosion, if it was just a reverberation from the first or whatever the case may have been. Global's Mercedes Stevenson broke the news earlier this afternoon saying Global has learned that a vehicle uh, packed with what police sources call a large and significant amount of explosives is what uh, explosives is what resulted in the huge police presence. And Mercedes went on to say that they've learned police believe the car was packed with Tannerite, an explosive material used in exploding targets. Now, when asked about that, the RCMP wasn't overly willing to say that that was the case quite yet. The uh, we're still, as I mentioned, we're still doing the uh, search for other potential devices. So we have not done any uh, uh, forensic examination. So we don't have any idea right now what uh, the substance would have been uh, that uh, could have been involved in this. You know that Global was tweeting that a van full of tannerite was found. I mean, it's out there in the public. What can you say about that? I would say we haven't done any uh, forensic examination or chemical analysis, so it's pure speculation. So we'll find out what exactly comes of the investigation in due course. Mercedes did go on to say her sources don't know what the motive is, but there's not a sense it's a national security threat. Details are still trickling in this afternoon following a couple of explosions in Sherwood Park last night. And we bring in Global's Fletcher Kent to dive more into what the RCMP had to say, what the mayor had to say. Uh, Fletcher, thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Give us sort of the latest that you were able to glean out of the uh, availability shortly after 3 o'clock this afternoon. Oh yeah, interestingly, that in that availability, it's really some of the first first things that we first time we've heard the police confirm a lot of this. A lot of speculation over the last twenty four hours. I mean, this is a spot. I mean, I don't know if you've been here before, but this is right at the heart of Sherwood Park. It's a bedroom community just uh, just east of town here, and this. I mean, it has the county center. There's the library. There's Festival Place, which is a place with a bunch of theaters. So there's a lot of people here, and we've been hearing from a lot of them talking about the whole building shaking. This massive gust of wind through a parking garage. We've been hearing about a lot of these sorts of things, a lot of speculation, but not a whole lot that we'd heard confirmed. Then at the 3 o'clock news conference, uh, police did finally confirm that there was a uh, a bomb that was found in the parking garage that detonated. But they also went a bit step further and said that while they were investigating the first explosion, when they had uh, officers down in that parking garage, there was a second explosion as well. And luckily, that didn't injure anybody. But uh, two explosions in the same parking garage right next to the county offices certainly has uh, uh, the police on high alert. They've had explosive disposal units that are all around here. They've got the major crimes unit out and the emergency response team trying to investigate and make sure everything's safe. So obviously a very uh, hectic and if not chaotic day around here for sure. What do we know about the suspect or suspects at this point? Well, suspect, I believe, is the most appropriate way. I don't believe police are saying that they aren't searching for anybody else. They don't believe there's anybody else. What they can say is there's a 21-year-old suspect. 
He has died. Uh, he was found in um, a car in that parking garage. Police aren't saying how he died, whether it was as a result of the uh, explosion or if it was from some other means. Uh, so we're not 100% sure on that. What we can say on how he did, we can say how he did not die. They was not in any kind of confrontation with police. So uh, he, he, he came, the police found him. He was inside the car. He was transported to hospital where he was uh, pronounced dead shortly after. So that's what we know about him. But they're not releasing his name. And the, and the, the biggest thing about it is they're not talking about uh, or they can't say what the motive is. So that's a big unknown in all of this is what motivated this. I mean, you have two bombs in a parking garage in the heart of a community right here. And um, still nobody really seems to understand what the motivation is. So a big question there for sure. Yeah. And, and one of the things uh, was asked was about the whether it was a gunshot wound to the head, I think, was one of the questions asked by one of the reporters. And uh, the RCMP wouldn't comment on that aspect of it. So it's still uh, keeping cards close to their chests in a sense. When it comes to the community, and, and just a quick comment here, what's the feeling in the in the community now after getting some more details? I think I think the biggest thing throughout most of the day, like you were saying, is wanting some of those details. Most of the time when people are, I mean, when we were, we've been standing here and talking to people, there's this desperate thirst to try to figure out what was going on. They knew something was, I mean, there's hundreds of people around here last mm-hmm. night. And uh, every one of them is like, what just happened? It felt like there was an explosion. And then there was sort of this information vacuum for the better part of 24 hours. Police say that they're investigating. There is a good reason for it. Um We'll see what that reason might be. Uh, we haven't heard that part yet, but uh, they said they need to keep their uh, cards close to their chest for investigative reasons, and that's about the extent of it. But they had the best interests of the people's safety at heart. Uh, since that, uh, since this has uh, come about, uh, to be honest, we have. I mean, this is a three o'clock news conference. We haven't heard a whole lot from the people that are around here, but I certainly can tell you just from speaking with them, they've been wanting to find out something about this for quite some time. So I. I, I you can't say that two bomb blasts are going to come as a relief, but just simply knowing that there were what it what it might be, that part might be a little bit of a relief to a lot of the people that, that I've spoken with. Just knowing would help them try to understand. I think. Global's Fletcher Ken, thank you so much for the time and the update today. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let me get this straight. We have one minister saying, hey, don't worry about it. The cost overruns will be covered by the feds. The other one kind of waffling on the situation. We asked for clarity on the situation through uh, Minister Ralph Goodale's office, and he kind of gave us a bit of a, okay, it's actually Kirsty Duncan's responsibility. We can't make the minister available. And it's those kinds of questions that have a lot of people wondering, what's the real deal with security costs? So as we continue our look into the various facets of the Olympic bid and the plebiscite coming up on Tuesday, we welcome to the program Dr. Michael Hine, the director of the International Center for the Olympic Studies at Western University. Dr. Hine, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. My very first question is, how much is typically spent on security during the Olympics? It's increased, increasing vastly. It has been increasing ever since, at the very least, 9-11, the Salt Lake City games come to mind. It's getting increasingly more important in these volatile political times. And what very often does not really find its way into the budget and doesn't get worked through in detail is cybersecurity, which is not an exactly new consideration, but it's 
gaining increasing importance, of course. When you look at the Calgary plan as it stands right now, originally they had uh, budgeted, I believe, at $610 million on security. The budget that was released last week uh, pins it more at about $495 million. Do those numbers make sense, or is it hard to tell, given we're still eight years out? It's very hard to tell, but overall, they don't make too much sense. All we have to do is look at Vancouver, for example, where security came in at over $1 billion, at least 45% over the initial estimate. These things are very hard to predict, A, depending on the political situation within which security has to be developed in eight years. B, as I mentioned, the cybersecurity threats will increase in frequency and probably also in severity, if anything else. So, and I understand from the budget that some efficiencies were created in developing these numbers through kind of clustering and aggregating certain responsibilities. Whether that works on the ground is anybody's guess. I would be very skeptical eight years out. Should the Bidco have put more in on that budget line item? Well, I mean, I understand the politics surrounding this and the plebiscite coming up, and the cost is always one of the main points for debate and disagreement right now, of course. So if you develop a bid, you try to keep all the numbers as low as possible. I can understand the strategy. Uh, Personally, I don't think so. It's not very conducive to an informed debate if you depress the numbers in that way. On the other hand, it also has to be said that most of the security costs is usually picked up at the federal level. So when time comes to pay up for that particular file in a couple of years, that cost will mostly be uh, taken over by federal departments. That's how it has happened in the past. There's uh, one stipulation where it's, I think it's $20 million spent in, uh, on a, basically an insurance policy for $200 million worth of, of uh, security in case of an overrun. Does that give any better, or is, does that make things a little bit easier to swallow or is that still not addressing the issue at hand? I don't think that addresses the issue at all. And I saw this item and I couldn't quite wrap my head around it because if I work in the insurance industry and I look at the history of and quality of Olympic bids and the prediction of budgets, I would have to say that this would be a very <laughs> dicey policy to underwrite, you know. Uh, I don't know that anybody has a foundation to determine what the risk of that kind of overrun might be. And if anybody in the insurance company, under the, in the insurance industry, under the circumstances, would be willing to underwrite this, I would be interested to hear the rationale when it comes to that point and just how much overrun that would cover. It is also uncertain. Keep in mind that the average, and this is only the average, the historical average of difference between initial budget plans and actual budgets at the end of the Olympics is over 150%. So Mm. these kind of predictions are very difficult to make.
Well, and as you mentioned, especially given the the different political times that we're in and what might happen over the next eight years, but even in the next few days here, there's still a lot of questions as to who's going to cover those overruns, and it seems as though there's sort of a political football being tossed around. Does that make it even more difficult for the average voter to wrap their head around, or how does that make it more difficult for the average voter to get wrap their head around this heading into Tuesday's plebiscite. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I were a voter in Calgary and making my check mark on the ballot, the one thing I would take as a given, and that is simply what the history of this tells us, is that the budget numbers that are developed at the front end, as I mentioned, never add up to what the final bill is when the event is over and everything gets totaled up. So Calgarians, I would suggest, should focus if they want to support this and if the cost and the financial side is of concern they should focus on a assuming that the budget will go higher wouldn't surprise me and then consider whether they would still be willing to support the event because the olympics in town are a fantastic extravaganza there can be no doubt about it it may have some positive spin-offs what the ioc likes to call legacies it may not have those spin-offs. Sometimes that works, sometimes that doesn't. So there isn't that much to go by, but Calgarians should focus on whether, even if the costs do come out higher at the end, whether they can see wanting to have this event in town. Dr. Michael Hine is the director of the International Center for Olympic Studies at Western University. Uh, Dr. Hine, thank you so much for the time today. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Thank you. A recent survey showed a lot of people don't realize that this year marks a very uh, specific year and a very uh, prominent year. It's 100 years since World War I came to an end. We're now joined by Rory M. Corey, the Senior Curator and Director of Collections at the Military Museums, to talk about the end of that World War and armistice. Uh, Rory, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, what is it at the military museums, or what are you guys doing to to mark this occasion? Yeah, we've got our uh, Remembrance Day ceremony on November 11th, of course. Um, so that'll be starting at 10.30. And we've got... Um, a number of presentations lined up for that, including a professor from Mount Royal University, Dr. Jeff Jackson, who will be speaking on uh, what Canada did during the last hundred years, or sorry, the last hundred days of mm-hmm. the uh, of the offensive at, that ended the First World War. Um, so uh, we'll be having a number of uh, presentations, performances uh, included with that. Uh, we've also been doing a whole lecture series over the last few weeks uh, related to the uh, the armistice and the, um, uh, you know, the last 100 days, that sort of thing. So, uh, interestingly, last week we had uh, tastes of the First World War, so um, people got to uh, taste, you know, some of the food that the troops would have used, like bully beef, for instance, which uh, is yes. pretty interesting. So yeah. <laughs> That's a music. nice word of putting, or wait, nice way of putting it. <laughs> yep, yep. And music of the First World War, we had... Uh, 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 we had a lecture on that as well, including some of the actual music played. So we've been doing some pretty in- innovative things related to that. Well, what kind of role did Canada play in those last hundred days? Yeah, Canada played a fairly critical role, actually, because um, 
by that point in the war, uh, the, the war had become more mobile. So trench warfare was the rule of thumb during 1915, 16, and 17. Um, but uh, when the Germans launched their major offensive in uh, the spring of 1918, movement was restored to the Western Front. And um, following that, uh, the uh, the Western Allies counterattacked. Uh, starting in uh, roughly in August, uh, there was a real push to retake a lot of the territory that had been lost, and Canada was a big part of that, uh, particularly as we pushed through Amiens and then on to Mons. Uh, we liberated the uh, the Belgian town of Mons at the end, uh, November 10th and 11th. So there were actually Canadians dying on the uh, last two days of the war as we pushed into Mons, and uh, the last Canadian died about uh, 10 minutes prior to the armistice. Um, so we uh, we were... You know, we were really shock troops by that point in the war. Um, the Battle of Vimy Ridge proved what we could do, um, you know, at, at a relatively low cost. Um, and the uh, the British and the Western Allies used us throughout the last hundred days um, to uh, to push into some pretty hard sectors. Um, we actually had some uh, fairly interesting battles there too. So the Battle of Uy, for instance, in mm -hmm. France at the end of October, uh, there were actually the Canadian cyclists were involved with that one. So people don't think of uh, troops advancing on bicycles very often, but uh, we actually had bicycle troops because you know you could get into battle fairly quickly, and uh, it was you know a cheap form of transportation. Um, and uh, the Canadian Cavalry Brigade was also involved in that as well. Um, that was the last Canadian cavalry charge um, during any conflict there was the Battle of Uy. Um, and uh, we were actually successful in that because of both of those, the cyclists and the uh, and the um, uh, the ca cavalry charge too. But uh, we had some really hard sectors uh, like the Battle of Drucourt-Cayon, for instance. Uh, literally, there was miles and miles of barbed wire to plow through for that. So... Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, Canadians overcame all those obstacles literally and figuratively. And uh, uh, like I say, the Battle of Mons uh, was a little controversial on November 10th and 11th because, you know, we knew the armistice was coming up. But an interesting point that I should point out about uh, November 11th is it wasn't the official end of the First World War. Um, that was just the ceasefire at the end of the war right. um, that marked the um, the conclusion of the combat. Um, the war could have flared up after that if the peace negotiations had gone differently. Uh, but the Treaty of Versailles was signed in June of 1919, and that officially ended the war. Mm -hmm. um, but we didn't know for sure that the peace negotiations would go successfully. So that's one reason why we pushed into Mons right. to try and liberate the, the Belgians from uh, from German occupation um, in the event that uh, the war had continued on. So, Rory, I appreciate the time and looking forward to what you guys have to offer on Remembrance Day. Yeah, I hope everybody can join us on Remembrance Day. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends. 